Welcome, welcome to semester two of Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder. We are so glad that you are here to join us for another semester of just pure sciencey goodness. I am Ailish. I am doing a Master of Environment and I am joined by Kai, who we'll get to in a moment. We all know and love Kai, but I I have an extra special announcement today because... This semester of Radio Silence is going to be just a little bit different. Um, You're used to seeing or hearing me, Kai and Kate. This semester, though, we're going to have a few new faces joining the show. And I'm really excited to introduce Carla. Hello, Carla. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? Really stoked to have you. Um, Carla, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Give us a fun fact. Yeah, so hi everyone, I'm Carla. I am a master's student in my final semester and I'm actually researching the bacteria of coral algae to see if they influence thermal tolerance. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here today. That's a very, very fun fact. And you're going to hear plenty, uh, I mean, coral algae, super fun. You're going to hear plenty from Carla soon, but we also have Kai. Hello, Kai. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Ailish. Always good to be on the show talking about science. And yeah, long-time listeners of the show know that I'm studying a PhD in physics. like to spend my days playing with lasers. It's pretty fun. He uh, is the yeah. laser lad, <laughs> as we have come to know and love. Uh, so today's episode is focusing on genetics because Carla knows all about genetics and we thought what better way to welcome you know, a new host than to kind of start in home territory but before we get around to that as always we are going to start with the news so kai tell us what is happening in the world of science at the moment well there's actually been a really exciting discovery in astronomy so for the first time astronomers have been able to directly image an exoplanet which is a a planet outside of our solar system but specifically an exoplanet that is in the process of forming a moon so that's it's pretty cool yeah it's it's not something that they see very often or ever before so this particular planet is orbiting a star that's 370 light years away which is a long way away and like pretty amazing that they can actually take basically a photo of something that far away Mm. but when what they saw in this image that they took of this planet was that it has a disk of material like dust and rock like swirling around it, kind of like rings, but but more of a disk. And the, the all the theories on how planets and, and solar systems form say that this sort of disk of rock and dust will eventually all sort of like clump together and form a moon. Cool. And they, they reckon that this particular planet has about a, enough material to make up like a moon the size of three Earth moons. So that's pretty pretty exciting. Um, but also something that's really interesting, and I think it's really cool that they can see this much detail in something so far away, is there's also another planet that they can detect in this solar system that doesn't have the same ring of dust. It's, it's, so it's probably not going to be able to form a moon. Mm. And, and there's a few different theories as to why this might be the case. It could be that this other planet is closer to the star and the star has like sucked away its little dust disk. Right. Or... 
Or maybe it's the first planet we're talking about actually sucked up all the dust from the other one and is now going to make a bigger moon than it could before. But all of this is, is really cool because now astronomers, they've identified this system and they're going to be able to study it as it changes over time to get a better idea of how solar systems form and, yeah, just gain an understanding of, of maybe things like how we came to be on Earth. So exciting. So, so exciting. Yeah. Carla, what sort of news, what news have you got? Thanks, Kai. So I'm actually going to talk a little bit about platypuses or platypi, whichever variation of the plural <laughs> term you like to use. Um, but basically, they just have some really bizarre features and are quite an anomaly in the animal world. So they lay eggs, they sweat milk, which I think is the most peculiar <laughs> one. That is odd. <laughs> they have a venomous spur, webbed feet, a duck bill, no teeth, fur that glows under a black light, and 10 sex chromosomes. So they kind of just don't make sense. Um, but up mm. until this point, we didn't really know or understand how they came to be. So researchers from the University of Copenhagen um, actually conducted a unique mapping of the platypus genome, and that was published in Nature. And basically, this study helped to puzzle out how other mammals evolved and even shed some light on human evolution. So basically, mm. they found that there are three genes that lead to the production of egg yolks. And we as humans don't have any of them because we don't lay eggs. But chickens mm. yep. have all three because they do lay eggs. Um, platypi actually have one of these genes, which means um, they still lay eggs. But interestingly, they don't feed their young through milk. Um, Sorry, they do feed their young through milk, but they the, yep. they sweat the milk out instead of like um, giving it through a mammary gland like humans. Mm, just a tasty lick of milk yeah. sweat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but what they actually found was that they do have casein genes, which means their milk is actually very similar to that of like cows and human milk. Right. Um, mm. So we actually must have all gotten this gene from the same ancestor that existed 170 million years ago. Wow. Yeah. So at the same, um, on the same point, they have 10 sex chromosomes, which is also really interesting because both humans and other animals have the XY system. So they, it's XX for female and XY for male. Um, platypi, however, had 10. So they had five Y chromosomes and um, five X chromosomes. And so what they um, predict is that these all like formed in like a ring formation and eventually broke off into just singular X and Y chromosomes. Um, but yeah, so this study revealed that the majority of um, platypus sex chromosomes actually have more in common with chickens that they do um, with humans. But mm. overall, what the study showed was an evolutionary link between mammals and birds, which I think was the most mm. interesting. Yeah, that's my That is pretty cool. Yeah, Wild. and I'll hand it. Hmm, crazy. Yes. Yeah, I'll pass well, it over to you, Ailish. I have another, um, I guess, strange animal adaptation um, <laughs> that has been researched. So biologists from Queen's University in Canada have shed light upon some mysterious lizards and their apparent ability to breathe underwater. This team traveled to Costa Rica to search for a certain type of anole lizard, which has the very interesting behavior of staying underwater for long stretches of time while they 
seem to be breathing in and out of a bubble that sits above their snout. If you can picture like Victor Crumb from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire (laughs) in the underwater trial, you know, and he's just got that big bubble around his head. It's kind of like that, but it's coming out of their snout. It looks really strange. Um, So these biologists were curious about whether the lizards are actually using this bubble to breathe underwater and, you know, what's going on here. So... They captured 300 of these bubble-headed anoles. Um, 120 were found near streams and 180 were found away from streams. And they gently submerged all of these lizards in containers of river water. And they found that every lizard did carry this bubble of air around their snouts and they appeared to breathe the bubble in and out but there was a difference between the two kinds of lizards. The ones found um, near the the river were able to rebreathe more often and stay underwater for longer than the land-based lizards. Hmm. And one of them even was able to stay submerged for 18 minutes by breathing in and out of this little (sighs) bubble. And so they inserted um, an oxygen sensor into this, these little air bubbles and they found that, yep, the oxygen levels drop and CO2 levels rise while the lizards are underwater. So that confirms that, you know, they're mm-hmm. breathing in and out. Um, and the researchers suspect that the bubble might also rebalance the levels by shedding carbon dioxide into the water and uptaking dissolved oxygen. But they're still working on that one to, to really figure that out. But because they can stay underneath for, for so long, you know, they think that might be what's happening. And it's also likely that the lizards are probably able to slow down their metabolism to reduce their need for oxygen while underwater. Um, but in terms of how do the lizards actually form this oxygen bubble? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask that, like, yeah. tell us. Pretty weird because, we, you know, we don't have a lot of um, examples of this, although who knows, there could be other species that do it that but we just haven't um, published yet. But the, the team are yet to know, like, concrete absolutely why they do it. But what they mm-hmm. think is that um, as the lizards dive into the water, a thin layer of air gets trapped against their skin because their skin is water repellent. And mm-hmm. they think then they can expand that bubble as they exhale into it and then use their lungs to kind of control the size of the bubble. So kind of like your own personal little balloon. Um, and yeah, so the, the team are, are keen to continue studying this behavior. You know, there's still more to learn, but it's definitely really cool to see, you know, a newfound way that animals can cope with being underwater. We know that fish have gills, you know, whales hold their breath. And now we also have weird bubble headed lizards. So that's pretty cool. Um, So hope you're all able to stay tuned for the rest of the episode. We are going to dive into a song. As I said, uh, today's episode is all about genetics. So we're about to launch into DNA by BTS. But first, don't forget, follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. Check us out on SoundCloud, Radio Silence on SoundCloud. And here's your song. You're listening to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. That was DNA by BTS, because today we're talking about genetics. Ailish, start us off. Yes, well, I mean, genetics is a broad topic, but I've decided to go back in time and look at our our relatives, the Neanderthals. Now, Mm. (laughs) even though... 
Neanderthals died out about 40,000 years ago. They they still live on inside of us. And I'm not talking about, you know, like that dim-witted guy that you met at a bar last week <laughs> or something like that. I'm talking about literally inside of us because uh, Neanderthal DNA lives within us in the human genome. Well, the non-African human genome. So Neanderthals have contributed approximately 1% to 4% of the genomes of non-African modern humans. Although a modern human who lived about 40,000 years ago, you know, around the time that Neanderthals went extinct, they have been found to have between 6 to 9% Neanderthal DNA. So the reason we don't find this in African people's genomes is because the Neanderthals evolved and live exclusively in Eurasia. So they couldn't have bred with the humans living with Africa at the time, just to clear that up. But let's get to the good stuff. What does this actually mean? I mean, the first thing is obvious. Yes, back in the day, humans and Neanderthals got it on. (laughs) And science have now found evidence of human Neanderthal interbreeding as far back as 100,000 years ago. Um, So in 2016, these particular findings were the first to show human gene flow into the Neanderthal genome as opposed to Neanderthal DNA into the human genome. Mm, And that data told us that, yeah, human Neanderthal interbreeding events were more frequent than previously thought. And they also reveal that there was an early migration of humans out of Africa before the population that survived and gave rise to all contemporary non-African modern humans. So Neanderthals have taught us a lot. But first, let's just rewind a bit. The very first analysis of any Neanderthal DNA, um, actually that study was published in 1997, so not that long ago, and it was taken from the first Neanderthal fossil discovered, and that was found in a cave in the Neander Valley in Germany, and it looked at mitochondrial DNA. Now, I just thought I'd take a second to step back. What do I actually mean by mitochondrial DNA? You know, if you if you skipped out on VCE biology or you know, year 12 biology for non-Victorian people, um, there are two kinds of DNA. So we've got nuclear DNA and mitochondrial DNA. And as you would guess, nuclear DNA is found within the cell's nucleus, while mitochondrial DNA is in the mitochondria, you know, the powerhouse of the cell. So <laughs> I was waiting for that. Yeah, I was, could not. I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, in humans, nuclear DNA generally consists of your 23 pairs of chromosomes that make up our genome, um, and it's inherited from our parents. You've got one from each one chromosome of each pair from either parent um but mitochondrial dna on the other hand is a much smaller amount of dna and it consists of a single chromosome that only um carries 37 genes and importantly mitochondrial dna is directly passed from the mother to the offspring so the genes passed down are reflective only of you know your mother your grandmother and back like that. So this makes mitochondrial DNA useful in studying relatedness over long periods of time, but of course it can be limited because we don't get to see the paternal contributions to the genome. And that first study of um of Neanderthal DNA was looking at mitochondrial DNA, but since then we found many more samples that have been um analyzed. But there is no current evidence that Neanderthals contributed to the modern mitochondrial DNA gene pool. We've only found nuclear DNA examples. 
And this is interesting because it throws around a few different hypotheses. So firstly, we have to consider the issue of sample size because we've only sequenced about a dozen mitochondrial DNA sequences of Neanderthals so far. So, you know, maybe we just haven't found it yet, but it is, but it does exist in modern humans potentially. Another possibility is that uh, there were at one point modern humans who possessed the Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA, but that their lineages died out. It's also highly possible that Neanderthals didn't contribute to the mitochondrial DNA genome because of the way their genes were or weren't passed on. Yes, we know that humans and Neanderthals bred, but we have no way of knowing what the possible social or cultural context for such breeding events would have been. Because mitochondrial DNA is passed down exclusively from mother to offspring, if Neanderthal males were the only ones contributing to the human genome, their contributions would not be present in mitochondrial DNA line. Yes, that's a possibility. Um, And it's also possible that while interbreeding between Neanderthal males and human females could have produced fertile offspring, maybe interbreeding between Neanderthal females and modern human males might not have produced fertile offspring because, again, that would mean we can't pass down that DNA. So we've got a few hypotheses there, but what other findings do we have from looking at Neanderthal DNA? Well, on average, Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA genomes are only a third as diverse as modern humans. And this points towards a small population size, and that could be due to the encroachment of modern humans into Neanderthal's range. And that's a whole other story because, you know, Neanderthals did go extinct, but haven't gone into that in this episode, maybe maybe (laughs) another episode. But based on fossil evidence, Neanderthals exclusively inhabited Eurasia. Um... And further evidence of Neanderthals having a small population size has come from a particular, well, actually a few nuclear DNA samples, but the particular one I want to talk about was um, looked at in 2014. And this was the first complete genome of a Neanderthal. Um, And this Neanderthal was found in the mountains of Siberia and her genome revealed that her parents were most likely half-siblings, and her genetic line showed evidence of high rates of incestuous pairings. So we, yeah, so we can't say precisely whether this is due to, you know, um, was it cultural factors or other factors, but it suggests that they were probably living in, you know, a small isolated population. So as I was saying, a lot of us have some Neanderthal DNA, right? Shocking. But what does that actually mean for us modern humans? Mm. Mm. Well, Mm. some of the genetic diversity we've inherited from Neanderthals is just like inactive, non-coding DNA. But there are a number of genes that have been selected for over time and they genuinely do affect us. So some of these genes relate to height. There's genes that control how well our immune systems work. Others change our risk for diseases like schizophrenia and lupus. And there's probably many more that we don't yet know about. Also, of course, different people have different Neanderthal genes. But one of the ways that Neanderthal genes may affect us the most, and this has been a more recent discovery, is by altering how often certain genes are expressed or turned on. And I know Carla's going to be talking a bit more about epigenetics, so I won't go too much into this. But essentially, if a gene is highly expressed, that usually means that it's being used to make a lot of a certain protein, 
So by looking at gene expression in people with Neanderthal ancestry and then comparing it with a modern human copy of that same gene, researchers have found that a quarter of the time there is a difference in how much the Neanderthal version of that gene was being expressed. So usually we'd expect a 50-50 split between um, the allele from your mom versus the allele from your dad, but we're actually seeing a difference a quarter of the time if it was a Neanderthal uh, gene. What's more, this difference was found to be different in different parts of the body. So specifically in the brain and the testicles, Neanderthal versions were not expressed as often. And this makes sense because Mm. our brains are quite structurally distinct from Neanderthals. And also when you think about it, you know, reproduction tends to be very specific. So um, maybe that, you know, evolutionary, it kind of makes sense for that gene to not be expressed as often. The one in the, in the testicles is actually to do with um, the, the tail of sperm. But in other areas of the body, Neanderthal versions were expressed more often than the modern human version. So, you know, there's still more to learn from this. Um, we've still got a lot more to understand. And of course, not only just about our own gene expression, but also we'd love to know more about Neanderthals themselves. You know, there's still a lot of mysteries out there, but extracting DNA from such old com- and often incomplete specimens can be really difficult. So it's kind of exciting, you know, because because technologies are improving, researchers are able to detect and analyze older and, you know, smaller fragments of DNA. So we've still got lots to learn. But yes, you quite possibly have Neanderthal DNA inside you. And that, that is a little weird. And I think we all have to come to terms with that. <laughs> Just have to deal with it because everyone, everyone has a little bit. Everyone's probably. a little bit of a Neanderthal. Yeah. <laughs> Some more than others. True. <laughs> well, thanks for that, Ailish. Um, we're going to move on to some more talk about genetics after this song. We have This Life by Vampire Weekend. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, where we are bringing science into focus for the hour. Today's episode is all about genetics, and we have Carla here to take us on a journey. Carla, what have you got for us today? Perfect. So I wanted to talk a little bit about epigenetics today. Mm. So what is epigenetics? Um, The actual word comes from the Greek word epi, which means over or above. So in this case, it's talking about over or above the genome. So this area of research um, involves the study of how our behaviors and the environment can cause changes that affect the way our genes work. So there's a whole bunch of different lifestyle and behavioral factors such as diet, sleep, exercise, smoking, how much alcohol we drink, um, and even environmental factors like stress, trauma, and they've even found our neighborhood postcode Um, can impact our genes. So these changes don't actually change the DNA at all. So the sequence of A's, T's, G's and C's stays the exact same, but how the genes are read and expressed does change. Mm. So I'm going to talk about two different types of epigenetic changes. Um, The first is chromatin structure. So if anyone has ever had to build IKEA furniture, you just know how important (laughs) it is to be able to read the instructions and the, it's the exact same case for genes. So genes are encoded in our DNA and they can be switched on or off. And so when genes are on, we get expression. So the reason I have blue eyes is because my blue eyed gene is turned on. 
Um, and so DNA is tightly bound together. And the reason this is so is because we have over 3 billion base pairs in our um, DNA. And there's over 25,000 genes in the human genome. So if DNA wasn't compact um, and we stretched it out, it would actually um, span the distance between the Earth and the sun 100 times. So Whoa. there's a lot of DNA. <laughs> um, oh so that's Wait, why is that in like one in one cell? Yeah, that's how big our genome is. Yeah. And so this is why it really needs to be compact when it's in the cell's nucleus. (laughs) So a way it does this is by wrapping itself around proteins called histones. So I'm going to need everyone to channel their inner DIY for a second. And imagine you have two pipe cleaners. So each pipe cleaner is one strand of DNA. And so you've twisted the two pipe cleaners together and you've got your double-stranded DNA. And then you twist that again around like a pom-pom or something of the sort. And so that represents how um, DNA is packaged. And so once you've got this, it's actually really hard for um, like the machinery that's required to come in and access genes if it's so tightly bound together. And so what they've actually found is that there are environmental factors that can influence how tightly bound um, the DNA is. And so Mm -hmm. if it's tightly bound, some genes might not be able to be switched on that need to be turned on. And then alternatively, genes that should be turned on might end up being turned off. So that's one type of epigenetic change. Another one is the addition of molecules that attach to the DNA, which also leads to switching on or off of genes. And this is called methylation. So this includes the addition of a methyl group. So imagine your two twisted pipe cleaners and you've stuck like some sequins or some decorations onto it. (laughs) So the machinery, once again, it can't access the genes to read them. So genes can be switched off. And so a topic that is gaining a lot of traction in the world of epigenetics is aging. So understanding why we age and why some people age quicker than others. Mm. And so um, age can actually be be defined in two different ways. So there's our chronological age, which is the age we measure in time, how many years we've been on this earth and we celebrate it with a birthday every year. And then there's our biological age. And so that's the age that our cells, our tissues and our organs appear to be based on their biochemistry. So how well they are functioning and how well they can bounce back from damage of whatever sort. And so we all know that 96 year old that like runs marathons like they're 30. (laughs) So that's like the best example of how like your chronological age isn't always reflected in your biological age. And so one study that has come out of the University of California, led by Steve Horvath, is actually a study that looked at the methyl groups and methylation of DNA. And basically, they tracked the changes and patterns of methylation in DNA over time in various body tissues. And what they could actually do is perfect what they called a molecular clock. And so it was just looking at um, the different methylation patterns and that was able to predict like the cell's biological age. Mm. And so they've actually been able to use this um, to estimate the risk of mortality and cell age. And they've been able to do this in 174 different mammalian species. And they've even looked at like long living animals such as the naked mole rat, bats, and even some whales. And they've been able to do that Um, universally so they can actually use this as a biological aging clock Um, and so this is really interesting because um, 
they're actually using this research to look at if they can um, look at methylation changes in DNA and actually restore youthful function of cells, tissues, and organs. And specifically, they're looking at the thymus gland at the moment, but they're looking at down the line, well, our immune system degrades over time because our immune system ages, as do we. Um, But if they can understand why this happens and how this happens, then we can potentially ward off disease and infection in the future. And it also brings up the idea of, well, could we actually be immortal and extend the human lifespan? I don't say, I can't say if it actually will come to fruition or whether that's even a good thing. Um, But definitely unpicking the biochemistry behind aging is just so fascinating to me. And so, yeah, it's coming down to these environmental and behavioral factors that I mentioned earlier that can actually affect this biological clock that they're seeing as well. Um, A study I would like to see is, um, yeah, if they can link these certain um, environmental or behavioral factors to the clock to see, I don't know, how much maybe like a lack of sleep influences your cell's age or something like that. You definitely would have to do a whole bunch of human trials, which is always harder to do. But I think Mm. the results would be really valuable and I'd love to see it happen. Um, As... Interesting as epigenetics is, I think um, the converse side of the coin, um, the study of the genetics of behavior is really interesting as well. So back in 30, we actually discussed a study of identical twins. So two individuals with the exact same DNA um, that were actually adopted into two different families in different countries, spoke different languages and didn't actually have any contact growing up, most importantly. And so they wanted to look at like how much of our DNA um, influences our behaviors, but also how the environment influences our genes and who we are as people. Nature versus nurture. Exactly. And so they looked at um, the behaviors of these two individuals, the minutiae of their day-to-day lives, what they like to do. And what they actually found, which I found really interesting, was that their favorite snack both of their favorite snack was grapes dipped in yogurt, which I think is a very specific thing. Um, But yeah, so it just kind of pinpoints that like, yes, the environment can influence our genes, but sometimes things are just like genetically programmed within us. And I think that's really interesting. Um, And so genetics as a whole is a very um, new field comparatively to others. And we don't know nearly as much as we would like to know about epigenetics specifically. But what we do know so far is that our environment does influence us. Um, So the moral of the story is you've got to eat, sleep and exercise well. You can eat grapes dipped in yogurt if you'd like. Um, But I think the main thing is you want to ensure that your biological age doesn't exceed your chronological age by miles. So I don't know about you guys, but I definitely want to be that 96-year-old marathon runner. So, yeah. 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 We all better start, like, meditating every day to, like, generally extend (laughs) our lifespan. I think it's more important than we realize after hearing that. Um, Well, thank you so much, Carla. Um, With that on the topic of aging, we now have Freckles by Eves Caritas. So welcome back. You're listening to Silence on Radio Fodder. And today we're talking all things genetics. So I'll hand it over to Kai. 
So the other day I was talking to my, one of my workmates about genetics. Like we were talking about genetically modified food and stuff. Mm. And then we started talking about like how, you know, there's different ways of getting mutations and sometimes they're good. And sometimes that's like good if you're trying to improve traits of, of a species or whatever. But then we started talking about some of the different things where like you don't necessarily need mutations. All the genes that do this weird stuff is already there. And somehow we got onto the topic of chicken teeth. And like, sounds pretty random, but like, you know, you know the expression as rare as hen's teeth, like, oh, chickens don't have teeth, but maybe they do. And there have been some- I've ever seen inside a chicken's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, no, chickens don't normally have teeth, Ailish, it's fine, but- um, there have been <laughs> <laughs> there have been various experiments where it's almost like mad scientist level stuff where people have tried to give chickens teeth, and one that's pretty old happened in 1980 was they introduced the like some material from mice teeth into chickens like embryo chick chicken embryos. And the idea was like, okay, if we put the material in the chicken in the right spot, maybe like it's going to make them have teeth. And you're like, no way that's going to work. But it did. In the right spot? Like they put it in the right spot and the mouth, what happened was, so there were the two things that they wanted to, to, to like sort out. One was whether introducing the mouse material would like actually be viable and like could you even do this sort of crazy experiment? And yes, you can. But second was that the chickens, like they had this suspicion that chickens already had the DNA to like make teeth. You know, long time ago, chickens or birds, you know, used to be dinosaurs or whatever, and they had teeth. So it's like, maybe that DNA is still there. Maybe we can activate that by putting in like this stuff from mouse, like the mouse material that would actually activate the chickens, like tooth forming DNA. And this would like create chicken teeth. And it's kind of like amazing that it actually did work. And these chicken embryos developed teeth. But they weren't chicken teeth, like whatever a chicken tooth is. They were actually mouse teeth, like they were yeah. molars. And yeah. it, like you look at the the pictures of like the specimens, oh, I don't and they know look. If I want to. <laughs> well, like it doesn't. It's it looks exactly like a tooth. Like even it looks pretty similar to a human tooth. Like I couldn't tell the difference. You know, it's it's got that like molar shape, what? and like you know, it's like a cross section, and you can see inside, and it it just looks like a diagram of a tooth from you know a biology textbook wow. or, or whatever. And I just think that this is this is pretty crazy that this can even happen. But a lot of people were like, oh, you know, that's that's not real. You didn't like those are mouse teeth. You just put mouse teeth in a chicken, which sure. is pretty bizarre anyway. But like the the scientists doing this sort of stuff were like, nah, we can do better. So there there was actually another discovery based on chicken teeth more recently, this was, I think, in 2016, where they were actually looking at a specimen of a mutant chick, like a baby chicken that was... It was like a 50-year-old specimen they had probably sitting in a jar somewhere, and they kept it because it was this mutant specimen, and like, oh, that's a little bit weird. Let's, like, you know, investigate it. And apparently no one had looked at, like, the jaw or, like, not the, the beak or the mouth of the chicken... And noticed that there were these little protrusions on it that looked suspiciously like teeth. <laughs> and like when you look at the photo of this this mutant chicken embryo, 
it's like, yeah, they look like teeth. They're little spiky things. And then they put if you put it next to like a normal chicken embryo that doesn't have teeth, it's it's like the distinction is clear. Like you can tell this chicken has teeth. And so what they did was then they tried to recreate this particular mutation and they, they were able to do that. And they made a whole bunch of chicken embryos with this specific mutation and they could look at which genes they had to alter to make the chickens start expressing teeth. So as they developed, like the genes that, that make teeth grow all switched on and started developing the chicken teeth. And like, that's pretty cool because the, the thing that if you notice when you look at these teeth, they're not, they're definitely not mouse teeth. They're actually most similar to alligator teeth. Mm. So, you know, they're kind of like cone shapes and pointy, yeah. which is like an alligator tooth or like a crocodile. And this, this makes sense when you think about it, right? Sure. Because it turns out that you know, chickens or birds are actually pretty closely related to crocodiles and alligators because they share common ancestor being dinosaurs. And, you know, we say that, that crocodiles are actually like one of the most closely related animals to dinosaurs. So it, it does make sense that they would have similar looking teeth. Mm. And, and we can see this. Um, so the oldest bird fossil is called Archaeopteryx and mm. it's like the ancestor of all modern birds. And you look at its teeth and it's got dinosaur or crocodile, like pointy teeth. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, birds went from having teeth to having a beak. And that happened about sort of 50 million years after birds split off from dinosaurs. So it was about 100 million years ago. So birds have had a long, long time to evolve and develop beaks and lose the ability to grow teeth. So some scientists did a like a survey among like they they looked at all the genomes of a whole bunch of different animals that had teeth and birds with beaks and tried to isolate which genes actually like cause beaks to form and what sp- specific proteins like actually, you know, in the developmental process actually yeah. make beaks grow. And the, the, from the, the author of this paper, they, they are quoted saying they wanted to know what a beak is. Like, fundamentally, what is it? Sure, like, yeah. Is it, like, a, is it, is a, it nose, a jaw is it or is it jaw, a nose? Yeah. Or is it like, yeah, what is, what is a beak? So they wanted to isolate exactly what genes switch on the beaks. And they found that these beak genes were specific to birds. So it is like a distinct thing right. compared to like jaws, which lots of animals have. So then they, they took it one step further and they're like, all right, well, we've isolated these genes. We know what proteins they code for. Let's try and switch off this gene. So they got chickens and Wait, as they were... <laughs> a beakless chicken? <laughs> well, not a beak. Well, yes, a beakless chicken, but it just didn't have like an empty face. It grew a jaw. What? Oh my God. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my brain doesn't know what it's like drawing blanks here (laughs) but also really weird cartoonish images yeah so like the pictures from the papers that they published probably don't really help because you don't get like a fully grown chicken you get like a half grown chicken embryo skull and you look at the skull and when the one where they were able to switch off these genes and cause the chicken to grow a jaw like it's quite clear that the structure of the skull is completely different to what a normal chicken skull looks like you know, mm. in the paper, they've got it like three skulls side by side and it's a baby chicken, this weird beak jaw <laughs> chicken 
and then an alligator, like a baby alligator skull. Yep. And you look at it and you go, yeah, the chicken, like the the chicken skull is like completely different to the alligator and the the jaw chicken. Like like they've actually made a chicken with a jaw that its skull kind of looks like an alligator. Like it's a bit different, but you kind of look at the the mouth Has part and it's gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. And like that does bring up a pretty like in all of these studies, they talk about how they don't let the chickens hatch. Like yeah. ethics says they've got to like destroy the chickens before they hatch because, yeah. you know, there's, there's complex, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit Jurassic Park when you get to this point where they're making like dinosaur chickens because they have jaws and teeth and no beaks. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty weird though. It's it's probably not such an issue in terms of like actually growing dinosaurs out of chickens right now because although chickens have the genes to like grow teeth and when I say teeth like their embryos had these little pointy bits in their mouth but they're not really teeth in the sense of it would be useful for like chomping on people in Jurassic Park um, because another survey has looked at the genomes of chickens and other birds to see if they still have the the genes that code for forming tooth enamel, so the hard bits mm-hmm. on your tooth. And unfortunately for Jurassic Park enthusiasts out there, it seems that birds have lost the ability to form tooth enamel, so right. their teeth wouldn't be very useful. And it's not just chickens. like They tested this on other types of birds, and it seems like the gene for forming tooth enamel was lost a long time ago. So... It's, it's had a, a long time for it to sort of like fall out of, of the genes. And it's yeah. not, not so much that it's like hidden away somewhere like the jaw genes are and not being activated. It's just, it's actually just, it's been lost completely. So it doesn't exist in the genome anymore. So if you wanted to make a Jurassic Park dinosaur, you'd have to figure out a way of reintroducing that. And right. <laughs> inst- instruction the last book for piece making of done. the puzzle. <laughs> yeah. Um, but maybe maybe going back to the, the mouse experiment might be it because those teeth did have enamel, but that's because oh, they introduced the mouse like yes. genes and like proteins and stuff. So like making dinosaurs from scratch is not so far out of the picture that it's like completely unheard of, but yeah, maybe maybe we should have some serious ethical considerations before we go and, and do that sort of thing. I was going to say, the question isn't can we, but should we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah. I think once we see a picture of these chickens, the answer will be very clear. <laughs> <laughs> very much no. <laughs> very, very much no. Um, yeah, ah. well, like, I have spent a lot of time looking at, like, pictures of chicken embryos, and that's pretty weird to begin with, like... Even yeah. without them being kind of dinosaur-y. <laughs> what a search history. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in on this episode of Radio Silence. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Radio Silence. And if you're like, what is this name? It makes no sense. Actually, it's very punny when you think about it. It's Radio <laughs> S-C-I, as in science, lens. Ah bringing science into focus that's it that's the one (laughs) so follow us on there uh check us out on soundcloud here with our last song it is amoeba by claro we'll see you next week